My friends, welcome to church. It is a Sunday. It is Advent. It is almost Christmas. Joy is coming. Let's get excited, folks. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Christmas, you can go and have a seat for a moment. How's everybody doing today? Woo, are you glad it's Christmas time? That's better than the second. That's better than the first. You can go and have a seat. You're good. You can go and have a seat. 
That was better than first service, but let's try that again. Are you glad it's Christmas? There we go. Yes, we love Christmas here at Westgate, and we are so excited you've chosen to worship with us today. If you are a first-time visitor, please take the time to fill out that connection card in the pew in front of you, or you can do it online. You can check out the app. You can get to know us better that way. We can get to know you as well, too. Um, again, we are so excited you've chosen to worship with us today. And also, if you have prayer requests, please uh, take the time to fill that out. We would love to pray for you. We do every single week as a staff and elders. We pray for each and every one of you. So at this time, I do want to have you guys greet one another, but I want you to do it a little different, okay? I want you to tell, tell the person, to find someone you don't know super well and tell them your favorite Christmas song and your least favorite Christmas song that you maybe hear on the radio, okay? Go for it. Go. This is a good one right here. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, a son is given. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The Son is given, the Messiah, oh, to see Him, to see Him high and lifted up, shining in the light of Your glory, for out Your power. Shining in the 
thank you so much for the gift of Emmanuel, God with us and God in us, that we get the, the benefit of the Holy Spirit living in and through us and working through us. We don't have to do things in our own strength and on our own, in our own power, Lord. We get access to the fullness of you. And I thank you so much for that incredible gift. I pray that you will keep us, keep, help us keep our eyes focused on you during this busy season. We just give you all the glory and praise. In your name we pray, amen. I'd like to ask you to continue in our worship this morning by taking the offering buckets here in the middle aisle and passing those um, through the sanctuary. Thank you so much. Good morning, church family. How are you today? Excellent. Here we go. We are getting ready to run headlong into the Christmas season and uh, super excited about that. But before we do, before we make this transition, I want to take a moment just to look back for one second uh, to the season we just came out of, uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, it was really great, uh, great time of Thanksgiving and especially here at Westgate uh, with iFriends Thanksgiving, our international Thanksgiving dinner uh, that we had. Yes, please, by all means. How many of you participated in iFriends Thanksgiving? I love it. A number of you uh, were involved, and uh, I can't thank you guys enough just for the time and the energy that you poured into this outreach to internationals that are in our uh, community. Uh, here at Westgate, we had, I believe it was over 175 of you that participated uh, in helping to reach out to the internationals in our community to welcome them and invite them into our church and teach them and share with them a little bit about our Thanksgiving traditions, but also to introduce them to Jesus, and uh, it was a really great time. We had over 130 international students and scholars uh, that are in our community come that evening, and uh, it was such a blessing, represented over 15 uh, countries uh, from around the world. And what I love the most uh, about this event uh, is just the testimonies and the stories that come out of it of the impact that was being made. We had a number of students from Iran that were actually here. And if you don't know much about Iran, Iran is a closed country to the gospel. And uh, what was so cool is that we had uh, a number of students from Iran who were here asking questions about Jesus, wanting to know more about Christianity and uh, about what we believe and to learn about our church. And so it was exciting just to see that even as they come and they don't know Jesus, Jesus, that there is this hunger to learn and to know. We were able to hand out many Bibles uh, in different languages to people and even had a small handful of people uh, come back from that dinner uh, to church the following Sunday looking for a church and a place to plug in and to learn more. And so I want to thank you, church, for your investment. You'll see the different pictures that were up on the screen of just an incredible event that was pulled off, but more so uh, that you were willing to take steps out of your comfort zones, many of you, and allow God to use you. And so 
let's just give praise to God for just the incredible things that he's doing there. And uh, really, too, let's just continue to pray that the Lord would bear fruit from that evening and the ministry. And there are many of you that are still reaching out to the students that you had around your table, so we're excited about that. Now, as we transition into the Christmas season with more opportunity to make an impact, you know, first service I came and I made an announcement that, you know, one of the ways that we uh, partner with That Neighborhood Church, which is one of our uh, daughter churches down in uh, North Toledo, uh, we, uh, we have always helped out with Bless a Child, where we provide Christmas for uh, many of the families that can't afford to do that for their kids. And this morning I came uh, to announce to our church that we had, uh, we had uh, sponsored a number of children. We still had about 21 kids to go, but before I could even get into the service, all of them are gone and accounted for. We have sponsored around 90 children uh, and families for Christmas. Yeah, it's really great. I love this church's generosity in the way that you look to take from what God has given you and to use it as a way to bless others so that also we can share the good news of Jesus with them. And so if you're still wanting to be a part, though we don't have more kids to sponsor per se, there is an opportunity to continue to buy kind of mis miscellaneous toys if you would like to donate those to TNC. And as I'll share with you at the end of the service, you can bring them to our Christmas on Wilford uh, event that'll be happening here shortly and uh, donate those because there are families that will also be pulling uh, from kind of a miscellaneous list as well. So uh, thank you again for your involvement in that. One other thing we wanted to do is make sure you're aware of our Christmas services and what we're going to be doing with Christmas uh, this year. We have got two Christmas Eve services. I would love you as a church to begin thinking about the people that God has placed in your circles, uh, how you can neighbor during this season and invite people that you've been sharing Christ with. Uh, we have two services, one on Christmas Eve. Eve Eve, that is the 23rd of Friday evening. It's going to be at 7 p.m. here at the church, a really great kind of creative uh, night of reflecting on the Christmas story and worshiping together. And then we'll have a second one on the 24th, Christmas Eve, uh, on Saturday evening at uh, 7, or I'm sorry, at 4 p.m. So 7 p.m. on the 23rd, 4 p.m. on the 24th. Then Christmas morning, one of the things that we recognized from the last time that Christmas fell on a Sunday uh, is that a lot of families like to get into their traditions. They've got family in town. And so sometimes church tends a little bit low. We have gone and created a very special, creative uh, online service for our church family this year that you can use in your home at any time during the day. Uh, it's about an hour long where we have done uh, very creative worship. Uh, many of our pastors have been involved in the teaching. There are things for youngest of young to the oldest of old in this service, and it's going to be streaming. Uh, it'll be premiered around 7 a.m. on Christmas morning, so you can watch the premiere. You can also go to YouTube and or our, our Westgate uh, Chapel uh, page and watch it anytime throughout the day, whatever works best. But also we know that there are those that love to gather and still find community on Christmas morning. And so the church will be open at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. We are going to stream that service, but uh, we'll have people here. And for those that want to gather and worship together and have that community, uh, please plan on joining us at 9 a.m. on Christmas morning for that. And so again, you can choose to either stream at home within the comfort of your PJs and your blanket and the warmth of your home and your family, or you can come here and enjoy that fellowship as well. So please keep that in mind. We've got all of that on our website and also on our church app, and we would love for you to be inviting people to participate with us. All right, through all of that biz, Christmas is 
here, people. I love it. Christmas is here. How many of you have already made your Christmas lists? Let me see. Anybody here? You better have, right? My wife has been on me for weeks to get my, she started asking me like weeks before Thanksgiving. And I'm not a big Christmas list guy. I'll talk about that more in just a little bit. But what I want you to do this morning is think. If you have your sermon notes, you can see this is the first question. What are the top three things on your Christmas list this year? I want you to think about that. What are the top three things? And now, as you begin to think about that, you could write them down if you want. I'm sure you know your, your, the people with you can look over your shoulder and see if you're being honest. What are the top three things? And then I want you to turn to somebody, not who's buying those gifts for you, but to somebody else in the room and to share with them what are the top three things on your list. And just to get a little bit more in the mood and get the blood flowing, we're going to have a little bit of mood music. So somebody cue the music for me. Let's hear it. It's coming. It's coming. There it is. Turn. Tell somebody. Top three things on your list. Go. We can only handle so much Mariah in church. All right. So, so as we uh, think about those top three things on your list, I don't know about you, like I said, I struggle the older I get with making a Christmas list. You know, feels like when I was young, I could sit down with any catalog and pick a million different things. Uh, my wife, she, she's like really, really easy. She, she, like, she makes a Christmas list very easy. Uh, like the top thing on her list this year was a new Bible. How's that for a pastor's life, right? You know, and she's like, you know, oh, buy me a new Bible. Oh, look at you. Um, me, my Christmas list, I don't have small things. I'm like, I need a new refrigerator, washer, dryer, you know, all those kind of things. So if you got two grand sitting around, uh, you know, no, I mean, seriously though, like I find when it comes to Christmas, I usually buy the small things that I want throughout the year. And then I got to make this list and I'm like, eh, you know, whatever. I've only got really big things. If you say what I need, here's the deal. What's interesting about Christmas is when we're making these lists, we're thinking about the things that we want or the things we think we need. What I find second point on your notes is this, is that our culture has conditioned us to believe that if we can attain certain things, that somehow life is going to be better and more full. If we can just get these things that are on these lists, I mean, anybody here remember uh, a number of years ago, 1996, I'm going to age myself, some of you were not alive, but 1996, anybody remember me, the craze surrounding this furry little red dude up on the screen? 
Tickle Me Elmo. You guys remember the craze, right? I mean, people died over this animal. It was crazy. Uh, Tickle Me Elmo, uh, parents would line up for hours outside of many big box stores just standing out in the cold so they could get in, race, and to get Tickle Me Elmo for their children because if their kids are happy, then they're happy, and that makes life all that much better. Honestly, Tickle Me Elmo wasn't that great, but since everybody else wanted him, you had to have him. It created this, this nutty craze. Well, when the doors opened on Black Friday and Christmas shopping began, there were horrific stories that were splashed all across the news screens because the internet was a little less important back then. But if you watched the news, you saw people being trampled, crazy fist fights that were happening, and all the more just for a silly red, little red doll that if you tickled him in the tummy, he would laugh at you, right? And what's interesting even more is that People Magazine actually published a story in January of 97, just following Christmas after the smoke had cleared of, uh, of the insanity at a local Walmart where there was an employee who suffered a pulled hamstring, injuries to his back, jaw, knee, broken ribs, and a concussion, all because of Tickle Me Elmo. I'm, I'm not, I kid you not, it was crazy. Because our culture's conditioned us to believe that if we can get certain things, life will be better and more full. And sometimes the things we go after are a little bit crazy. But what, ha- what, I, what I find is this truth, is that it seems as humanity, we, we seem to be on a search consistently, constantly, to find things that will make our life feel more full or more complete or more joyous. And yet what's interesting, even though we live in a country where there's so much affluence, so much wealth, where, you know, even those of us that have very little in our culture today compared to the rest of the world, like we have way more than most people, even in the midst of that next fill-in, studies show that Americans are less content, less secure, and feel a greater lack of purpose or significance than at any other time in our history. And that's amazing to me. With all of the stuff that is at our disposal that we can try to fill our lives with, we seem to be less content, less secure, and have a greater lack of purpose or significance at any time in our history. Now, do you want to know a secret this morning? How many people like secrets? Anybody here like to be in the know on secrets? I love to be in the know on secrets. Years ago, uh, when we lived back in California, when my son was only two years old, Rochelle took him uh, Christmas shopping for dad, and uh, I had put at the top of my list that year a barbecue, and as they went to the store and they picked this barbecue out together, she looked at him and she said, Garrett, don't you tell dad. She told him like 10, 15 times, don't you tell dad, don't you tell dad, don't you tell dad. Literally, they they pull into the driveway, walk into the house, Garrett comes running up to me, throws his arms around my legs and goes, Daddy, bark a cue. And my wife is sitting back there going, are you kidding me? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I know the secret. I'm in the end. I love secrets. We love secrets. We love to find out the good things, right? Paul, the Apostle Paul, not really good at keeping secrets apparently because as we look at Philippians chapter four today, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Philippians chapter 4, Paul is, says to us very clearly, I have learned the secret. He's going to share it with us. I've learned the secret to contentedness. Over these next many weeks together as we go through this series, All I Want for Christmas, we're going to be talking about these three things of contentedness, security, and purpose and significance, things that it seems we are all searching for. 
and how it is that we find them. And this morning, Paul is going to teach us the secret to contentedness. How is it that we find true contentment in our lives? Go ahead and flip with me to page two in your notes if you haven't done so already. But as Paul begins in Philippians chapter four, one of the very first things that he's going to help us to see and understand with just a very few short words, letter A is this, is that true contentment begins with a renewing of our minds. It begins with a renewing of our minds. You'll see actually in the entire book of Philippians, a book that Paul writes where a lot of the themes in here have to do with our joy and have to do with contentedness. You'll see that he uses the word mind 10 times. He uses the word think five times. He uses the word remember a number of other times. In this passage, he's gonna talk about, about learning. And when you put all of these things together, you see that there is this theme that he is constantly weaving of renewing of thinking differently. And so we come to see letter A, that true commitment begins with a renewing of our minds. And if you have your Bibles, look with me at Philippians chapter four, verses 10 through 11. What Paul says is this, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me indeed. You were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. I want you to remember that when Paul writes these words to the church in Philippi, he's actually imprisoned in a Roman prison, and he was placed there for proclaiming the gospel. Now, if you are uh, new here at Westgate, if you've never put your uh, faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have a relationship with him, when I say that Paul was in prison for sharing the gospel, the gospel in its most basic sense is the good news of God's love for the world through Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that, um, that all of mankind has sinned against God, that essentially, and we'll see this this morning as we continue continue to dig into this passage together, we'll see that all of mankind has sinned against God and that sin separates us from God. And because there is that separation, there is a punishment that we deserve. And yet the Bible tells us that because God loved us so much, then rather letting us face that punishment for our sin, that he sent his son Jesus into the world. What we celebrate here at Christmas time is Jesus coming into the world, God's son, who lived a perfect life so that he could die on a cross, paying the penalty for our sin so that we could be restored in a right relationship with God. That is the crux of why Paul is in prison in Rome. He's in prison because he's been sharing the good news of God's love for the world through Jesus Christ with other people. And it was not popular within Rome and especially with the government. Paul was thrown into this Roman prison because he was proclaiming the gospel. And in Roman prisons, the prisoners were dependent on outside support for everything. They needed people who would bring them clothes, people that would bring them food or anything else that they might possibly need. And so what Paul does here in, the, in verse 10 is he is thanking the church in Philippi for their concern for him, not just for the gift, but for their concern. They weren't able for a time to send any sort of support or gift to him, but now they have. But he says, look, I'm not as concerned about the gift. I'm just happy that you are concerned for me. But what does he go on to say? He says, I am not saying this because I'm in need. He says, but I have learned 
to be content, whatever the circumstances. The key word in these verses that I want us to focus on is, I have learned. He says, I've learned. One of the things Paul helps us to understand is that contentment does not come naturally. Actually, selfishness is what comes very naturally. And Paul recognizes that if we're going to be content, that there is a need for us to have our minds renewed. You can see this throughout the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, listen to the words that Paul speaks. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Look at the key words in this passage. He's focusing them on knowledge and having depth of insight so that they would be able to discern discern what is good, what is pure. You see, as we think about this, literally Paul's desire is that we would learn and think differently as he has, specifically in our passage this morning in the area of contentedness. And so if we're gonna learn, let's take a look at contentedness. Actually, let's take a look at discontent. Number one in your notes, what is discontentment? What is it? As we look at dictionary.com to look up a definition, a very simple definition of discontentment is this. It is a restless desire or craving for something that one does not have. It's a restless desire or craving for something that one does not have. Have you ever seen a child that is playing by themselves with a toy? Maybe, there, maybe some of you that have had kids or maybe you've done babysitting, you've, you see a child that is sitting, playing happily with a toy, completely fulfilled in their life and circumstance in that moment. And all it takes to disrupt that moment is another child to walk into the room with another toy, maybe something a little bit newer, a little bit shinier, something that seems to be better. You might even see this happen in your homes on Christmas, right? Like somebody opens this toy and then they see that one, they go, oh, but that's better, I want that. And it breaks the whole world. All of a sudden, the small child's contentment and fulfillment is broken because there's something better that they don't have. Another child walks in, a shinier toy. What happens? Happiness is broken. I'm really glad that we outgrow that, aren't you? Right? Wait a second. We don't, do we? It doesn't stop there. Really, the only difference between children and adults is that when it comes to our discontent, our toys are typically bigger and a lot more expensive. However, as we think about what discontent is, a restless desire, a craving for some, something someone does not have, number two, we need to understand where our discontentment originates from. At the very core level, where does discontentment come from? This is something that we need to understand if we're going to learn the secret to contentment. And the first bullet there that you see, I believe that the belief, uh, discontentment originates from the belief that someone or something is holding out on us. That someone or something is actually holding out on us. I've been watching in the news 
this past week at some of the articles that have been going through, and I've seen that um, there's been uh, the threat of a railway workers' strike, people that work on the rails. And uh, one of the reasons that that has been happening is because they feel like their bosses, their employers, are holding out on them. That The bosses' employers have a lot of money and a lot of opportunity to, to take care of them in a better way. And so because of that, one of the things that they've been asking for is to be able to have sick time off, which to my understanding, they don't have. And they just want like a week, a week's worth of sick time off in a year. They've been asking for it and not necessarily getting it. And their discontent stems from this thing of you have got something that, that you could give me that I would like, but I can't get my hands on it. You see, sometimes our discontent comes from someone or something that we feel is holding out on us. If someone is holding out on me, I think to myself, I can't be content in life. And I want you to catch this morning that that is a lie that began in the Garden of Eden. And every single one of us in this room has believed it. I want you to see that this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. If we go back to the Garden of Eden and we look at the conversation that is there, we will clearly see that this lie began in this place. Remember that Adam and Eve are in a perfect relationship with God. He's providing everything that they could ever possibly want, everything that they could possibly ever need. And then this happens. It says in verse one of chapter three, that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat, fr eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent looks at her and says, you certainly will not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What does the passage say after this? It says that Eve looks at the fruit and she sees that it is good that it's pleasing to the eye. And no doubt she begins to think to herself, God's holding out on us. There's something better. So what does she do? She takes the fruit. She takes control into her own hands and she eats. Then she goes to Adam, explains the whole thing to Adam. And Adam's like, oh, yeah. And takes some for himself as well. What I want you to see as we think about this lie that Satan told to Adam and Eve. You see, the lie was very simple. God's holding out on you. There's something better. You need to take control into your own hands because he's holding back. And it leads to number two. Our discontentment not only comes from the belief that maybe someone or something is holding out on us, but the belief that we can control our contentedness by controlling our environment and pursuing worldly stuff. And since the very Garden of Eden, this has been the sad, sad story of humanity where God's desire was to provide everything for us in a perfect relationship with him where we have no need and experience the fullness of everything that he has. Adam and Eve began for all of humanity the sad story that we would constantly believe that there's something better out there that we don't have and that if we're gonna get it, we need to do it ourselves. 
As you travel through the Old Testament, you will see this story and even into the new. At the time of Noah, it says that God said that the world was filled with evil, people were corrupted in their ways, and the world was filled with violence. Violence. Because people would do anything that they could to get what they wanted so that their lives would be more full. If you continue through it, you see that God's people eventually were enslaved by Egypt. Egypt and the Pharaohs doing evil against other people for their own personal gain so that their lives were better, so that they were pushed down so that they could have more. You see that the Israelites, even after God, God's people, as God comes and he rescues them from Egypt, he promises them incredible blessing. And he takes them on this journey that is far beyond anything we could imagine. Not only does he use all of these incredible plagues and show his power over the forces of nature in order to draw his people away from Pharaoh, he parts a sea so they can walk through on dry ground. As they have hunger, he provides food from the heavens. As they need water, he provides water from the rock. Everything they could ever possibly need when the enemies would come before them, he would give them the ability to rout them. Literally, he would provide for everything. It seems incredible, and he promised to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land where they would be his people and he would be their God. It was meant to be this perfect relationship where they had everything that they could need. And what did they do? What all of humanity has always done, consistently complained about God's plan. Apparently he's holding out. I can do better on my own, so I'll, I'd rather go back to Egypt, or I'd rather do this. They consistently worshiped other gods. They even made idols with their hands. Man made idols and set them up to worship, thinking that somehow something they made would get them the contentment in everything that they were longing for. And the story continues throughout the Bible, even at the time of Christ's birth. You know, the Israelites, we know the story of the Old Testament, that as they continue in the land with God, they continue to worship other gods. They continue to turn their hearts to other things and other ways to find contentment. God allows them to be punished by having nations that come in and take them out into exile. They literally lose the land. And then God promises them, one day you're going to come back. And one day I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Messiah that is going to come and overthrow your oppressors and really bring you back into that relationship with me that I always intended for you. And so we know the story, right? The people come back into the land, but they're still underneath oppressors. They've kind of set up uh, in the land. But even at the time of Christ's birth, the longing of Israel for the Messiah seemed to be, have more to do with their own personal worldly comfort and having reign over their enemies than it did about a restored and right relationship with God. The Messiah that they longed for needed to fit their need list. And for many, their need list seemed, uh, there didn't seem actually to be room for a king that didn't fit their needs. Thus, you see why a baby that's born to a poor family from Nazareth, born into a cave, laid into a feeding trough for animals, with no kingly pedigree and no worldly notoriety, you begin to see why this baby was not fit to be the one who would bring them the contentment that they longed for, because he didn't fit their definition. So going all the way back to the garden, throughout the Bible, 
throughout all of history and even to today, have you ever noticed that no matter how much stuff you can get and accumulate for yourself, no matter how much control you think you have over your life, it's never enough. What Paul tells us is that the first thing must happen if we're going to find contentment is that our minds are renewed, literally that we think differently, that we see clearly that we have bought into a great lie that inception was in the Garden of Eden and caused us to turn our backs on God from the very beginning. When we understand this truth, it is then that we can begin to understand letter B, that contentment is not a state of account. It is a state of the heart. I'll say that again. Contentment is not a state of account. It is a state of the heart. Have you ever had a a young baby, a small child that is dependent on everything that you've been holding your arms and it's crying profusely? And you know one of two things is true. It either needs to be fed or it's got a soiled diaper. And usually by the smell, you can figure out which one it is, right? You've got this small little child. I want you to think about how we think about contentment. We have this small child that is crying. And so what do we do? We feed them or we change their diaper and they stop crying. Now they're content. Why? Because their circumstances have changed. Picture a child that's complaining because they want something. Walking through the store, tugging on your pant leg. I need that. Complaining continually. Eventually, what do you do? You've had enough of the complaining, so you give in. You give it to them. You give them what they want, and what do they do? They stop complaining. Now they're content. Why? Because their circumstances have changed. This is the most common way that we think about contentment. If only our circumstances would change, then we would be content. If things would get better in life, then we would find the contentment that we're longing for. But that is not contentment. What Paul wants us to see is that contentment is completely free from dependence on our circumstances. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. In verse 12, he continues and he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Maybe it'd be really good for us at this moment as Paul says, look, guys, I have learned the secret to contentment. It doesn't matter if things are good or bad, if I'm hungry or well-fed. I know the secret to contentment. Maybe it would be good for us to pause for a moment and make this very personal to our lives. What Paul is talking about is a contentment that is not dependent on how many worldly toys we can accumulate. Paul's talking about a contentment that is not dependent on inflation, a contentment that's not dependent on which political party or person is in power, a contentment that is not dependent on health, a contentment that is not dependent on your circumstances. If you're single, you're content. If you're married, you're content. If you have kids, you're content. If you don't have kids, you're content. If you get into the school of your choice or not, you're content. If you have a job or you're in transition, you're content. If you get the promotion or you don't get the promotion, you're content. If you're in prison or you're free, it doesn't matter because you are content. Do you see how incredible this is? But I want one thing to be very clear. Paul is not saying, that all of these things I just mentioned are unimportant 
or that they don't affect our lives. Because the truth is, they do affect our lives, at times in very deep ways. But this contentment that Paul talks about, it's not about pretending that everything is perfect in life when it isn't. It's not about ignoring hurt, heartache, pain, uh, disappointment, or grief that is real. Remember, Paul is literally sitting in a Roman prison, dependent on other people to provide for him. Remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he has already given us a full description of the difficulty of his life. A person who has been stoned, he's been thrown into prison, he's been shipwrecked, he's been hungry, he's been sleepless, he has been everything awful that we could possibly think of. What Paul's not talking about is a superficial approach to life that pretends that life is easy when it's not, because he knows that it's not. But that's the best part of the secret that Paul shares with us. In spite of your circumstances, you can experience true, real joy and peace and contentment no matter what situation you may find yourself in. And he wants us to understand this truth, let us see. The contentment is not found in what you have, but in who you trust with your life. Contentment is not found in what you have, but in who you trust with your life. And Jesus is the answer to our discontent. Amen? Jesus is the answer to our discontent. Our default position, though, in life is to often to try to produce contentment on our own. You may say, okay, Rob, I get it, that contentment isn't dependent upon my circumstances. What that means is is I got to try just a little bit harder to find that contentment within myself. I got to kind of white knuckle it up and push a little bit harder. But that's not the answer. And this is where our secular culture and even at times our own Christian culture have gone so wrong for years. No amount of self-help, power of positive thinking, self-talk, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-worth, self-focus, self-sufficiency, none of it will provide what the, the contentment that we long for. Oftentimes what happens in our secular culture, but even our Christian culture, is we'll see books like this that we're told that if you want to experience contentment, go buy this book and it's going to give you your 10 or 12 step program to finding your best life, right? Create your best life. Secular book, there's another one written by it, completely heretical by a pastor. And I'm going to tell you that the answer is not here. The self-help book, the description on the back of it reads this way. Listen to what it says. Creating your best life is the only research-based book on the topic of goals and happiness. Filled with interactive exercises and quizzes, it helps readers set and accomplish life list goals and understand the link between goal accomplishment and happiness, also known as positive psychology. In a step-by-step fashion, the book teaches readers how to coach themselves on how to set goals in 16 life domains, as well as how to take control of their environment to maximize their chances of success. If you just control your own environment, you'll find exactly what you're looking for. Can you do me a favor? Don't add this book to your Christmas list or any like it, even by heretical pastors. Because notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that the answer is in gifts or goodness that we receive. He doesn't say, I can do all things because of your gift, church in Philippi. 
He doesn't say I can do all things because I'm enough. What is the answer? Philippians chapter four, verse 13. I have learned the secret to contentment and it is this, that I can do all things through him who gives me strength, through Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you see what Paul has come to grips with? It's powerful. He has literally cracked the code of the Garden of Eden. The core of our sin was in asserting our independence from God, thinking that we could do better apart from him and that we don't need him. But what Paul sees and has learned, and that I believe he wants us to learn so that we can think differently, is this is that no amount of self-effort will ever give us the contentment that was ours when we lived in perfect relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. It is impossible in our own strength to do better than what God can provide. And God was never holding out on us, and he still is not today. He simply waits patiently for us to come to the end of ourselves and to see our need for him because he wants us to intimately know, as Paul would say, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one who is the firstborn of all creation, the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He wants us to know the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. Because when we place our faith in Jesus, we now have the very spirit of God that is living inside of us. That means that we have the joy of Jesus living in us. It means that we can have the peace of Jesus living in us. That we have the very strength of the creator of the universe residing within us. We have the promise of eternal life with God through Jesus Christ. And there is no circumstance in this world that can take that away from you. Single, married, kids. Kids, no kid, job, no jobs, promotion, no promotion, good economy, bad economy, good world leaders, crazy world leaders, good health, sickness, COVID, cancer, you name it. No circumstance can take Jesus away from you. And if I have Christ in me, I have all that I need. Do you want contentment in your life? Then Jesus must be your life. So what is the secret? What is the secret that Paul wants us to unlock so that we can think differently? Letter A, that we would believe that Jesus is better than the best things that the world has to offer. That Jesus himself is better than anything that this world can offer you. We just went through this Thanksgiving season together of worshiping even together last week, talking about the things that we are so thankful for, the ways in which we have experienced God's goodness and his work in our life over the past year. And you'll see on these boards that are up front, these chalkboards, you came up during the service and you wrote those things and wrote these words, these attributes of God. You'll see them here on the screen. And there were such beautiful things that you wrote that you are so thankful for his grace, that he's your savior talked about his faithfulness. You talked about the way in which he provides. One of the things that's on the very bottom left of this one that's on the screen, and I know you can't see it, really struck me as myself and even the staff were reading these this week. It struck me that somebody wrote, he makes me brave. 
And I think of the story that has to sit behind those type of words and the stories that sit behind all of your words that sit on these things of how you have experienced God's goodness and his character and his love. And when we write these words and we think of the stories that sit behind these words of how we've experienced him, how could we ever not come to the conclusion that Jesus is better than the best things in this world? That he offers us far, far more than the world ever could. 1 John 2, 16 through 17 says it this way, that everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Matthew 6, 19 through 20 says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, the writers of the Bible are desperately trying to help us to see and to understand. Jesus himself wants us to know that the best things that this world has to offer will always fail you. They will always break down. They will never give you the contentment that you long for and you desire. Look at what Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter three, verses four through eight. He says, though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. For zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was flawless. What does Paul say? I reached the top. I had it all. The Hebrew of Hebrews, I had all the knowledge. I had everything, more so than you. What does he say after all that? But I count it as nothing. It's worthless. It's rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. His deepest desire with everything that he attained that was worldly in this life, he recognized that Jesus was better than all of it. The secret is that we come to this understanding that we've bought into a lie and that what God offers us through Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. But also letter B, when you do face abundance in this life, you need to remember and worship the giver of that gift, not the abundance itself. Remember that God is the one who is the giver of everything that is good. In John 10, 10, Jesus says these words. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. How beautiful, how beautiful that we have a God that even though we would sin against him, that even though we would continue to sin against him, that he would send his son into this world to die so that we could go from that place where we have been trying desperately in our own strength and our own power to find contentment. He would say, though you've rejected me, I will give everything because I want you to experience life to the full again. And it happens within an intimate relationship with God. We need to always remember that when we experience that abundance and that full life, we need to remember not to worship the abundance, which leads us into thinking that is the thing that fills us. And remember 
that our worship needs to be of the one who has given that gift, Jesus himself, but also let her see. The secret is that when you are facing a time of need, to cling to Jesus is the one you find your contentment in, to cling to Jesus. In John 16, 33, as Jesus is preparing to leave his disciples, he reminds them, you're in a broken world. There will come a day when I will make all things new and all things right, and you will live and reign with me forever. But he says, I've told you these things so that in me you would have peace because in this world you will have trouble. It will hurt. There will be difficulty, but take heart. You can find contentment. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Praise God. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the beautiful gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we move into this Christmas season and we celebrate this baby that was born of no worldly honor or recognition, with no kingly stature, we can see, Lord, your plan unfold to help us to see that our greatest need isn't more stuff. It isn't saving from the evils and the horrible things of this world, our greatest need is a restored and right relationship with you. Because when we're in that relationship with you is when we find our greatest peace, our greatest joy and complete contentment. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son. Would you help us this morning as we search for contentment to learn and to think differently and to understand that our contentment is not found in this world, but it is found in you and in you alone, no matter what season of life we may be walking through. In Jesus' name, amen. Comforter 
God sent his son, Jesus, into this world to be born, to live, and to die at the hands of his creation. He loved us that much so that we could be in that right relationship with him again. 
We didn't have to atone for our sin ourselves. Christ atoned for us on the cross. What a beautiful gift. Is there anything more that God needs to do to prove to you not only his love for you, but his deepest desire is for you to experience the fullness of life that he has planned for you if you would surrender your heart to him. We come to this time of communion to worship together and to remember the gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. As we come to this time of communion, one of the most important things I think we can do is to take a moment and to pause and just allow God to search our own hearts and to ask the question, is there any sin in my life or in my heart that is between me and God? Because when we come to this time of worship, we wanna come with pure hearts. We don't wanna come trying to hide things and pretend like it's not there. But as we reflect on what Jesus did to get us into a right relationship, we wanna come purely. So I'm gonna give us a moment to just take a time to quietly reflect and to pray. You know, it's interesting, like, you know how important this is? Like, it's so important that Jesus literally says in the Bible, he says like, hey, if you come to the altar to worship, and you recognize that there's something between you and your brother, what does he say? Get up, don't worship me, take care of business with your brother, then come offer your sacrifice. That's how important it is to come in purity of heart. And so we want to take a few moments just to quietly pray and reflect and ask that God would speak into our hearts, that he would show us ways that maybe are between us and him or even us and another person, that we confess that as part of our act of worship, knowing full well that he is lavishing us with his grace. So let's take a few moments in quiet prayer to confess and to worship. says that when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples the night before he would give his life for us it says that he took bread it says when he took the bread that he broke it he shared with his disciples he said this is my body which is broken for you what he wanted them to understand is that he was going to give all of himself every piece of him, his entire life, so that they could be reconciled to God. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance, the beautiful gift of my life that I have laid down for you. Let's take it together. also tells us that on that same night after he took the bread and he took the cup 
of wine that was sitting there on the table. And he shared with them the truth. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. You see, his disciples in those days, they would have had a real clear understanding of the significance of his blood being shed. You see, every single Jew, in order to receive atonement for their sin, would regularly and continually have to give sacrifices where they would take sheep, they would have them slaughtered on an altar to make atonement for their sin. It's a regular practice all throughout the year. And what Jesus did when he took this cup and he looked at them and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you, is he reminded them once for all time, I am the pure spotless lamb who allows his blood to be shed to cover over your sin so that you can be restored to God. Let us worship together and give thanks to God that his blood covers over every sin once for all time. Let's take together. Oh, Lord, you are so good to us. And would you help us, Father, as we reflect on your death and your resurrection this morning, even as we move into this Christmas season, would you remind us, Father, of the depth of your love for us? Oh, God, you have gone and given everything to restore what we broke in relation to you. And Father, I pray that you would help us because of this act of love that you have demonstrated for us, that you would cause us, Father, to come to our senses, to literally think differently and to recognize that our contentment will never be found in our own striving and taking control of our environment. Our contentment will never be found in our collection of stuff in this world, but it will only be found when we return to a right relationship with you and it is found through Jesus. And so, Lord, I know that there are people here this morning that have never made that decision and have heard maybe the gospel for the first time. I ask, Father, that you would move them to that place this morning of turning and surrendering their heart to you, recognizing that the greatest contentment they will ever find is not in stuff, but it is a relationship with you, with the promise of eternity forever with you. And Father, there are many of us that are here that are wrestling with things in this world that we're constantly trying to find our fulfillment in. Much like the Israelites, we got you in one hand and the world in the other. Father, would you teach us to drop the world and to just surrender our hearts to you and to find all of our contentment, all of our joy, all of our fulfillment, all of our satisfaction in you, to your praise and to your glory. We love you, God. You have proven the depth of your love to us. And so our lives, Lord, we want them to be an act of worship. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh, close our service this morning, again, if you uh, have any need for prayer, we would love the opportunity to pray with you, whether it's prayer for healing, if there are things that you've been walking through with God and you just need somebody to talk to and to pray with, our prayer team would love that opportunity to pray with you today. Uh, Tom and Holly are part of our prayer team and they're over here this morning. Would love the opportunity to pray with you, take you over to our prayer room as well, to a more private place. Um, if you're at home and you would like prayer, you can see on the screen uh, that there's an email address you can shoot your prayers to and someone will contact you today uh, just to have that 
time of praying with you. As we close our service together this morning, church family, I just want to remind you that as we go into this Christmas season, we've got a lot of great things that are happening. One of those great things is coming up this next Saturday. It is December 10th. We're having what we call Christmas on Wilford. It is our, yeah, it is our large Christmas party as a church family where we come together and just enjoy being part of a family. There's going to be tons of crafts and things to do. We're going to have like a really cool walkthrough to reflect on the Christmas story over in our gym, all different sorts of eats and food and photo booth and like you name it, it's here, it's going to be fun. We also have opportunity to serve our community well. If you want to bring coats uh, for people that need coats, uh, canned food for people that need food, uh, as I mentioned, toys for TNC, we can still collect individual toys, we want to continually be serving and so you can bring those and donate those on that evening as well. But what I really hope you'll do is think about who the people are that God has placed in your life, in your circles that you're looking to share Jesus with and invite them to come with you next Saturday. Anytime between 5 and 8 p.m., we've got invites that our staff are going to be handing to you at the doors as you leave. Take one as a reminder for next Saturday, but grab an extra to invite a friend as well. And church family, as you go, my prayer for you is that not only would you, as you leave here from this place and go out into this chaotic commercial Christmas season we're in, is that you would find your contentment in Jesus but that you would also point people to the fact that they as well can find their contentment in him. Thank you for worshiping with us today. God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next Saturday.